Hi, welcome to Marking the Roll, a podcast for teachers. We're based in the Illawarra, but it's for teachers all over Australia and indeed anywhere. My name's Phil Dye, I'm your host. This is episode 18, the start of season 3. Now, season 3 is going to be a little bit different to season 1 and 2. We've got at least four probably five episodes, but we may not get to the eight. Mainly because Lee Louise, our producer, has got a real job. So she can't be here as much as she was before. The first two are going to be on trauma-informed teaching. Now, I know that teachers are overwhelmed with uh, paperwork, with mandatory training. There's some ridiculous mandatory training. I looked at the list and empowering through data... um, Let's write an English unit. Oh, what joy. Um, Cybersecurity. We've got something I found called AVID Digital 1XP English COP. Wouldn't have a clue what that means. So we have a lot of mindless stuff. But trauma-informed teaching is so important these days. I came from a traumatic childhood and the way that my teachers treated me and sometimes catered uh, for me uh, is one of the reasons I went in to teaching. When I was at school, it was my safe place. uh, And the longer I could stay at school meant the less time I had to be at home. And this is the same as many of your students out there. I bet there's also teachers, uh, many of you who have had a trauma childhood Um, And it's probably now that you're seeing what the results of that trauma uh, are, because um, sometimes you only see the results later on in life. Some broad categories of trauma include uh, witnessing um, trauma uh, occurring to a loved one. In other words, witnessing domestic violence, uh, having an, an accident, um, a severe car accident, the unexpected death of a loved one is traumatic Physical violence against yourself, of course, that's traumatic. Uh, Having a family member who's depressed can cause trauma. Having a family member who's addicted to either substance or or gambling, or even having a family member who's in prison. And the definition from SANE Australia uh, says that a traumatic event is something experienced by a person or a group of people as powerful, upsetting, stressing and or distressing. Now, this is not um, losing 100 metres race. It's not just getting 60% in an exam. It's not the small stuff that is a normal part of living. Yes, we all have ups and downs and we've got to get used to it. That's not trauma. That has very little impact, but some has a severe impact and forms uh, brain pathways that are very, very hard to eclipse. And as teachers, you'd probably know that um, children have certain windows of learning in their development. Say a learning window between five and seven may influence rational decision making. Now, if that trauma pathway has closed that window, it means that child cannot learn those things and develop that ability for rational thought. So it is so important that um, all of those windows remain open through childhood and not be closed through traumatic experiences. 
I was an educator in the School of Medical Sciences at the University of New South Wales for several years and we used electroencephalographs, EEGs, to teach people about the brain, where they could actually see the pathway that was happening inside their head. And uh, I've used this in Teacher PD to illustrate to teachers how it works as well. And it is the science behind trauma that has made trauma-informed teaching such an important thing these days. Now, in this episode, I interview Beck Thompson. Beck Thompson is the author of Chasing Normal. Uh, she talks about her traumatic childhood. It is important for listeners to know that trauma can be in all different sorts of ways and sexual abuse is one of the big ways that um, young people experience trauma. Now there is a, a brain break halfway through uh, the interview. I suggest you get up and have a bit of a bop around and release some of the tension. Next episode I'll be interviewing Tom Brunzel from the Berry Street Education Program and I'll also be adding some of the, the last parts of the interview with Beck. So it'll be concluded in the next episode. Now I thought I'd start the interview with asking Beck to tell us a little bit about her early childhood, her childhood um, between the age of zero and six years old. Well, it, it was quite normal and, and happy and, and pleasant as, as I remember it. Uh, there was certainly nothing, you know, that, that created any sort of sense of fear. I, it was relatively normal. I had a mum and dad and grew up with my uh, three other siblings and, you know, I got to play and, you know, it was back in the day when you could sort of play until the streetlights came on and then come come inside and, you know, we spent a lot of time outside and I had a fairly connected relationship with my mother. You know, I always felt like there was someone I could go to. So, um, and my and my siblings were certainly, you know, they were, they were fun to, to be around because we're all you know, so close in age. I think there's, um, you know, two and a half years difference between me and my um, two siblings, um, my older siblings. So, yeah, I, I, they were just a really lovely memories of, of um, playing. And and something happened at around age six. Can you talk about that? Yeah, so... Uh, uh, when I was six, uh, going into grade two, my parents decided to separate and, and divorce. Uh, I wasn't, obviously, don't remember the details, but um, my father didn't think that my mum could handle a single life with four children under nine. So it was decided that we, uh, my mother, my siblings and I would move into uh, my paternal grand. Uh, father's house and he already had five other women and nine more of his children living there and uh, life pretty much changed immediately it, it went from everything I knew to a completely foreign world where my childhood was pretty much came to a stop did you take anything from your old life and like books or toys or anything like that no, well, that was the really interesting thing was um, I kind of when we when we moved in and we were given a tour of this big house with 
20 odd people in it uh there i was sort of looking for those familiar things that that i had in my in my old home uh even my clothes i remember opening up the cupboard and wondering where my where my uh, familiar clothes were so we weren't actually allowed to take anything i i believe my father actually just turfed them in the in the bin everything that we had my i had dolls i had teddies i had you know books that were favorite books um yeah nothing was absolutely nothing was taken into that house because uh, you know despite them being 13 children in the house um you wouldn't have known because there was no play at all so and where did all these 13 children come from well they were my grandfather's children right so, right yeah so my father is actually the eldest of all uh all the children so he he sort of remarried and yeah but then he had yeah it's pretty like a i guess you sort of call it a, a cult-like experience where he had children children to different women in the house so we were spoken to rather than being able to speak to them so we knew all their names and who had the power who had the authority who didn't have the authority like my mother but um it became pretty clear to you straight away that you had to do some hard work in the house what were some of the the tasks that you were given yeah so pretty much the house revolved around chores so and I, I always think that I got the short, the short. I drew the, the shortest straw, um, because it, it, I seemed to get the jobs that um, just were the most meaningless to me. Even at that age, I, I just did not see the point. One of them was to scrub behind the industrial dryer because there were so many of us, um, and it was, you know, it was probably couple of inches wide at the back and so I had to make sure that was clean um, every morning and every morning yes <laughs> everyone had a right. everyone had a job I don't know how dirty it could get in 24 hours but no, no. but because um, that was always you know that was obviously one of the things that that stood out to me when I moved into the house was how everything was so clean and and I soon realized why is because it was it was the children's job predominantly to keep everything completely pristine so uh and fairly regular uh, church services but within within the house is that right yeah so my grandfather had a uh, like a specially built um, little church room at the side of the house and uh, it was you know we had our own pathway to it the children we certainly couldn't go through the house uh, because there were two different type you know parts of the house there was the the uh, cold area that the kids were in and then there was this luxurious side and the church was on that luxurious side so we had to walk outside and around so that's where our most of our, uh, our Sunday sessions were, and then we'd go to another room uh, where we had to then talk again about what the sermon was about. And of course, you know, as children, you you don't really, you can't really take that in anyway. I mean, you know, mm. it, never, it was never that interesting listening to Bible passages at six or seven years of age, and no. then to have to go and analyze it. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. Did you ever go outside and go to the shops? 
No, no. So, um, look, there was, we had the rare Sunday walks. So they were all organised and, and well, we had to stand in line, uh, two lines, like we were we were going to school because we had to walk to school like that as well. Um, but no, it, there was nothing really normal about living in that house except that we got to go to school. So aside from school, I didn't, you know, I didn't catch up with friends. I didn't go to shops. I didn't, I, I wouldn't have been able to tell you what was happening out in the world because we, we didn't get to watch TV either. So anything I learned about what was going on in those years, I would get from my peers at, at school. As well as doing the chores, um, there were other things expected of you in the house as well, weren't there? Yeah, so there was uh, the, the, obviously the, the most uh, damaging part was, was abuse. We were, um, I, I was certainly um, subjected to um, sexual abuse by my grandfather. Um, there wasn't a lot of, obviously, options in that it was it was almost expected so we didn't get a choice in that it was just something that we were were told we had to do uh and yeah there really wasn't much say in that at all actually you mentioned these other women in the house now excluding your mum do you think that these other women knew what was going on um with the abuse from your grandfather Yes, I, I do because I I was often led up to his bedroom by the women, and they were often, um, you know, the ones that were 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 prepping me um, to go up there for sure. And it was it was part of the objective because everything was about helping my grandfather, you know know what he's doing and what he wanted and yeah so they were well informed of what was going on in the ha- in yeah with regards to that for sure so it really adds weight to you you calling it a cult it's very similar to that yes definitely yeah, yeah. So he he thought he was god's messenger he he sort of referred to himself as the messiah so everything was you know his way and and what he ordained as the truth and he was he's in his mind he was protecting us all from from the devil's playground outside outside the walls we lived and and everything he was teaching the women and the women were teaching the children was was the the gospel truth as far as you know the, obviously the other significant thing was was the beatings uh just that absolute control of you could not put a foot wrong and um you know it was just there was no compassion met with mistakes um it was just abuse it was beatings it was isolation and you know if if they didn't feel that you were getting the message if the message wasn't getting through and you you were just this you know naughty child that could not be redeemed somehow then um probably the most traumatizing for me was that they would get my mother in uh unknowingly she wouldn't know what the problem was because she had no say in how i was treated um but they would get her in and make her beat me um, with that, no context or anything. And of course, my mother was too 
too afraid to 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 say anything or to put a stop to it. So, um, in, in that case, it was just it was just a very cruel existence. You just couldn't. Um, you just had to be so acutely aware of not putting a foot wrong, or even just an expression on your face would warrant, um, you know, going without a meal because we certainly didn't. We didn't snack. It was just three meals a day because anything outside of that was greedy. You know, I mean, if you're running around at school and you think you're coming home for a snack, as most kids do, um, it just wasn't it wasn't a thing. So um, that was, yeah. Well, I'm not sure how you're feeling, but I feel like a brain break, something to just release the tension for a while. And uh, we're going to have... A brain break from Illawarra band Stunts with their song No Fields. Now, if you really want to have a brain break that does you some good, don't just sit and listen to this one, but get up and bop around. It's a good bop around song. Of course, you can sit with the tension if you like, but if you're driving in the car, just tap the tap the uh, steering wheel, something to get some of the, uh, the uh, tension out. Illawarra band stunts with no feels.
That was the stunts with no feels. Now, it sounds like a, a full-on band, but there's just, just two of them, um, and they do all the music and the singing themselves. It's got a real 80s sound, a little bit like the, the Dugites, if you ever remember the Dugites, a bit like uh, the Pixies, perhaps, but it's a great sound. Now, if you like them, go to Spotify and just look up stunts or you can go to any of the streaming services or you can go to marking the role and we've always got a page there for the music that's being played during the podcast and time to get back to my interview with beck thompson author of chasing normal and i asked her if her mother did anything uh, to stop the beatings or the abuse when she was in the house no. So, I mean, and she didn't. I, I think uh, she knew because she, I, I, she was also badly treated. Uh, she was really quite insignificant in that house. I mean, she, she could have been, uh, you know, see-through. It wouldn't, that's what it was like. It was like she was invisible. Um, and, you know, I, that's one of the things, you know, later on in life you sort of, you sort of try and think of I'm a mother myself and I know what I would instinctively do if that was my child um but for whatever reason my mother did not uh do anything uh until she left uh, and that was probably the most significant thing that she did that probably saved us in the end so and what age were you when when that nightmare ended in the house I was uh, nine and a half, so it was yeah, it was just before um, Christmas in 1986, I think. Right, so it was about a three and a half years being there. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Now, um, <clears throat> children who suffer trauma in certain vital brain development windows, let's say between five and eight or six and nine years, um, often have a knowledge deficit where what is learned, say, at school, um, is blocked out. It's completely forgotten. For, mm. um, or it's distorted. There is something in, in distorted in it. Um, did you experience anything like that? I would say that that was predominantly my experience in primary and secondary. Uh, I, I distinctly remember one of my... M- main memories of when I moved into this house and I was starting, I was in grade two, I distinctly remember just feeling this, like the room just looked like a blur and I could, I could hear the teacher, you know, when you're, you know, you're trying to talk underwater, you, you can hear the sound, but you can't make out the words. Um, mm. And that, that's my, that's my first memory of coming to a new school and a new teacher and having walked into this um, new environment and, you know, all of a sudden you're being beaten, you're being controlled, you're being screamed at and, and, and being abused. And then having my mother taken away from me so I couldn't engage or talk to her at all. I, I distinctly remember just sitting there, just looking around and not really understanding anything. Uh, I, I certainly wasn't taking anything in. Uh, but that's that's pretty much been my predominant experience is I, I don't retain it. I wasn't retaining things. Um, mm. You know, sometimes I, I would stare at the teacher just wanting to understand it. Uh, of course, being too afraid to say 
I don't get what you're saying, especially if, you know, they're, they're making it clear or they're re-explaining something. You certainly don't want to be that student that says, I still don't get it. So mm. I completely relate to that experience because I felt like I was just in survival mode. And I think, you know, that, that sort of just survival coping mechanism of trying to survive what was going on at home, that was more then you know that was that was what i needed to do primarily then try and take something in at school it's important for teachers out there listening that that's one of the the telltale signs isn't it that absolutely. nothing is is going in absolutely and and i think that's one of the things i you know even teaching now I'm just so mindful of that children come to school with so much that we do not even realise. We don't know what they've experienced that morning. We don't know what they've they repeatedly experienced, especially if it is abuse or it is violence, witnessing violence, hmm. being on the other end of violence, you know, it's uh, and and to sort of think they're coming to school and just, you know, click and ready to learn and take it all in and engage and it's just it's just not going to happen, you know? No. Mm. Now, after you left the house, the abuse didn't stop there, did it? I, I wish I could say it did. <laughs> no. Uh, so we went to the what my mum hoped was the safe refuge of her parents. So we moved from my, my father's father's house to my mother's father's house. And, look, it was a couple of months in. Uh, you know, it was sort of where I was starting to get all those benefits of being a child again and, and, and I was warming to that slowly of, of, you know, even just having my hair done in pigtails or being able to eat at my leisure or talk to my, my grandmother and go and, you know, roam around the, the farm property that they had with all the various animals and, you know, watching TV and things. So I was certainly learning that, okay, well, this this is becoming a safe environment and I can start to relax. But um, no, unfortunately, my my maternal grandfather began abusing me as well. So, you know, sort of automatic shutdown again that, that um, home was not a safe place once again. Yeah. And when you were about four to 13 or 14, you decided to do something about it. Mm -hmm. What did you do? Well, I, I mean, we'd sort of moved around a few times um, when we when we initially moved from the first house and uh, and my mum had decided that she'd found a house to buy back in the same town as her father. And you know, I was a teenager, so I'm becoming increasingly aware of what's happening with my own body and and also acutely aware that, my grandfather was still abusing me and I didn't, you know, I just, I wanted it to stop. I just, it was really weighing on me. I was quite anxious. And, and um, so I just, I told someone in a, in, in the street that I lived in at the time, what was happening. It was the first time I told anyone. And, um, you know, even though she promised not to say anything, she, you know, she did the right thing and she went and spoke to the police and, the police then landed on our new doorstep. And did your mother support you in it? 
No, no, unfortunately not. Uh, she refused to believe it, it at all. There was there was no investigation at all. There was no inquiry. There was no, you know, why would you say this? How could you say this? When there was just nothing. It was it was completely shut down. Um, and and that was really the end of it. And then you realised something about your mother. Well, I realised I I was on my own. I I was completely on my own, and that uh, was probably the biggest blow because it was it was it was almost like when we moved into the house when I was six and I was on my own because my mother was there but she couldn't be there and she wasn't there and but when I when it got to reporting it and it was all out in the open and the policewoman sat there and asked me point blank it it was kind of a sliding doors moment and Mm. I knew uh, the risk I was taking uh, by by admitting what was happening but also knowing that this was it you know my mum was never going to to stand up and support me and that I from from that literally that moment on I was going to have to deal with this on my own and and all the repercussions around it because obviously the family you know were completely disgusted that I was um saying anything like this about my my grandfather so Hmm. yeah Hmm. and how were you at school during this time well this was so this was the start of year nine and i had already changed schools again um and it was incredibly difficult. I mean, I I struggled to relate to my my peers anyway. I think I'd been forced to grow up a lot um, quicker than than my peers, so that made making friends even harder. But uh, now I was in a new school. I didn't really know how to find my way uh, with with um, people at school and, and certainly the peers in, of, of my age group. And I, I certainly tried, and but they were the ones that didn't want to go to school. So which for me at the time, even though school was my safe place, uh, the, the group that I got into they wagged a lot. So it was kind of a perfect opportunity for me to wag with them. So I actually didn't go to school. Uh, I mean, I didn't, I, I probably missed about 50 days, which is, is quite a lot in year nine, because I just needed to escape. But the only right. But the only yeah. time that I really, year, year nine particularly, I, I was lucky that I had one teacher that really stood out. And that was my English teacher. And he was just, I just remember he was, obviously he was very caring and supportive teacher, but he really harnessed my strengths. And at the time when, you know, there was nothing but avoidance going on at home and my mum was really struggling with being um this whole situation and and being seen as the naughty daughter by her own father, uh, I really latched on to that teacher who could say, "Hey, I actually see a strength in you. Let's let's really 
dive into it and explore it a little bit and and bring it to life. And for me, not having that parental compassion or support at home, it was um, the teacher really filled that void, I think, and and kept me going to school. I, I didn't ever wag on the days I had English. So. Right. Because <laughs> I just... I just needed to see. Um, I I needed to be around that teacher because I felt I felt loved. I felt like yeah. someone liked me. Yes, it's interesting. I mean, that teacher didn't have to do any, you know, mandatory professional development. They were yeah. simply nice to you, listened to you, and saw what you were capable of. Yeah, and and that's 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 the thing. That's that's what's key is that it's there's no professional development in this and he look he had no idea what I was going through at home and mm. um and and what had what had happened uh, but he just he was just had that way that you know just brought something out in me that I needed someone to see that there was something about me because at the time my mum had pretty much shut me down in entirety I was just I was like, I said to someone recently, it's like being an adopted daughter. There was no emotional connection at all. It's like, yes, hmm. you're my daughter, but that's where it ends. Yeah. Um, whereas no hugs, like, no hugs when you came home from school? No. Well, you know, you can't, I think once you know where the line in the sand is with your parents, there's... You don't really expect anything. So, you know, my mum had the go-to, how was your day? Hmm. Um, but, you know, my I remember when I walk in every day and, and my mum would be sitting there, how was your day? And I remember one day thinking, why do you care? I mean, if you don't care about anything that I've been through uh, and you don't <laughs> want to support me in that or, or at least see how I'm going emotionally and having to you know, deal with the fallout at such a young age of my my uncles and aunties not wanting anything to do with me and you really want to know how my day was? Why? <laughs> do you – well, what about your friendships? Did, did you have friends? Um, the friendships I, I had and developed were outside of school. So the, the town that my mother uh, – house that we bought was was a very small town and, and – I had one friend mainly from in that town that uh, I remember she came up to the door one day to go and hang out and this was after everything had come out and um, I, you know, I left at the opportunity. But I remember telling her um, because it felt like well, I couldn't get past that because there was so much going on and I couldn't, you know, she was such an upbeat you know, very carefree person and, you know, laugh a lot and just want to go and have fun. And, you know, I couldn't do that because I felt like I had the weight of the world on my shoulders and I couldn't relax enough to want to have fun and, you know, just too busy trying to hold everything in that uh, I told her what was happening and what had happened. And she turned out to be, you know, an incredible support for me. I mean, she still challenged me to, you know, try and let things, you know, go for the moment and go and have fun and jump in the river and, and whatnot. But um, she was, and we're still friends today, 35 years on or so. And, um, yeah, it, she was an incredible support 
uh, in my life during those those particularly difficult years, for sure. Now, you'll be hearing the last part of my interview with Beck Thompson next week, um, when I'll also be talking with Tom Brunzel from the Berry Street Education Model. Now, I've got two copies of Beck's book, Chasing Normal, to give away. Now, now, there's two ways of winning, but you've got to either donate or become a member of the podcast. Um, you go to the little yellow copy, coffee cup on the markingtheroll.com.au website. There's a little yellow coffee cup. Um, now, for the first 10 people who donate, and you only have to donate $5. If you donate 5 bucks, um, you go into a drawer out of the first 10 and uh, if you win that draw I'll send you a copy of uh, Beck's book Chasing Normal and also if uh, you become a member now becoming a member is more expensive it's $20 for the year for a basic membership but only the first five that become members uh, go into the draw and I'll draw out one of those five for a free copy of Beck's book and don't worry you'll be notified when that uh, draw has finished it'll be up on the uh, uh, buy me a coffee site you've been listening to episode 18 the first of two episodes on trauma informed teaching next week Tom Brunzel will be taking us through some steps as to how to identify students who may have a trauma background and with COVID in the last three years there's many of them but this episode was just to give you a glimpse as to the type of trauma that students um, can experience. And um, as Beck said, uh, their teachers would never, ever have known. If there's been anything in this podcast that has caused you distress or raised issues, if you're in Australia, you can call Lifeline on 131114 or Beyond Blue on one three hundred. Double two four six three six. You've been listening to Marking the Roll. Tell your friends about it. Follow us on Facebook, and I'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>